Hi there. Welcome to our tattoo podcast. Uh, my name is Ryan Othis. I'll be your host today, um, and we are talking with uh, Dr. Uh, Matt Lauder from uh, the University of Essex over in the UK. He's an art historian uh, who has studied tattooing and tattoo history for years and years and years, and the conversation is just awesome. So I, I hope you guys enjoy it. Um, I'm not going to do too much on the front end here, just do our normal plugs. Please give us a review if you like the show, uh, follow, any of that other stuff. Send us an email if you want. Um, it's uh, tattoosandpodcasts at gmail.com. Or you can call the listener line if you want to make a comment. Uh, get thrown up on the show if you have a question as well, whatever you want. Uh, the phone number is 208-696-1828. And that's it for today. We're just going to just jump right into it. I hope you guys enjoy it. And we'll uh, talk to you at the end. start just because I, I hate missing some stuff which is fine yeah i didn't know you did a podcast actually yeah so that's um, amazing. yeah it's called uh beneath the skin um mm. so we've been doing it probably about six months now mm. yeah it's like basically just sort of me and um uh, my friend tom who well my, he's become my friend tom who's who's producing it and we just sort of yeah, so we, it's it's more about kind of the history, like history around tattooing, rather than history of tattooing, I suppose. Well, um, but we've we've had some cool interviews, like we interviewed Doug Hardy, and we interviewed Danielle, who runs runs Lyle Tuttle's collection, and yeah. um, we've had some like Egyptologists on and archaeologists, and yeah, it's good, it's good fun, man. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm, I would say I've, I've read most of your academic work, so seeing that you're oh, like in this stuff, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I I I kind of fashion myself after the academic side of stuff. Although I did not go and get a PhD uh, <laughs> at a highly reputable uh, university college. Uh, so, cheers. Uh, Is it to... early for you? Whereabouts are you, man? I am in Portland, Oregon. Yeah, it's it was pretty early. Lovely. Yeah, when your uh, email came in, I was still sleeping. So oh was... shit, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> oh no, no, well, no I was good. I was looking at my schedule for the day, and I was like, I didn't, don't think I received that um, that invite. So mm -hmm. yeah, no worries. Yeah, I um, I was up until about two in the morning last night, um, just because that's like my average work day, and um, <laughs> it was cool. I actually beat the the babies up out of bed, so I'm like on my fourth cup of coffee, and I also apologize because I had a couple shots of tequila last night, so my fucking brain is just like a little bit <laughs> it's a little bit off today but Portland uh, will do that to you <laughs> so um normally how we run the show is we're going to do our interview and then afterwards we try to do some fun stuff and because cool. you are in you're in uh London is that or more or less yeah uh, I'm, a, I'm out um a cat so there's cat handling my microphone um <laughs> Yeah, I'm out. I'm about an hour outside London in Essex. Yeah, in Essex. Okay, so we have some. Um, <laughs> it's because the British culture is very uh, distinct and unique. So we have some um, British yes or no questions. 
which if you've ever been to, to uh, Maori Old England and you like to sit around and talk with people at the pub, not, um, then, then, then you, maybe you'll have a kick out of this, but if not, I mean, that's cool. So, okay. Um, so I guess to start, why don't you, why don't you tell us about yourself? Who are you? Where are you at? What do you do? Oh God, that's always a big question. Um, well, my name is Matt Lodder, uh, Dr. Matt Lodder, if you will. Um, I'm a tattoo historian. Um, I work at the University of Essex in, in the UK. Um, I have just published a book uh, called Painted People, which is um, coming out in the US actually in a couple of weeks in May. Um, came out in Europe in, uh, in October last year, which is a kind of history through tattooing is the way I sort of normally explain it. Um, but I've been doing this for... You know, I've been sort of, well, I've been, I've been like officially like working as a tattoo historian for about 15 years. I've been obsessed with tattoos since I was a kid. Um, and I think I'm kind of not unique really, but um, certainly rare amongst um, academics who've written about tattooing in that I was tattooed first um, and got into academia to try and figure out this tattooing malarkey <laughs> rather oh, right than on. the other way around, mm-hmm. um, which has kind of led me to you know, some really interesting places. I, I, most of my work, I work very closely with like private collectors, um, towers, towers, families, um, in, in trying to tell stories that aren't always, you know, uh, in the, in the kind of mainstream historical record. I've done some curating, did a big exhibition of British tattoo history, uh, that toured around, um, okay, for a few years. And yeah, like I, I, I sort of travel all over the world and, and talk and research, mainly about western tattoo history um mm. mainly from the like 19th century onwards but i've i've you know i've i've sort of dabbled into a lot older and wider than that as well um, yeah that's that's amazing i think the the first time i'd seen you was on a, a youtube clip from somebody who was doing some just collection of voices throughout europe and i was like who the hell is this guy man like <laughs> I, going through a- academia myself i was on a philosophy track like i was trying to talk about this because i've been in tattooing for 21 years and i noticed that there was a, an apparent lack of understanding or um even e- even just that's the word i'm looking for people are just studying trying to understand put things together because tattooing to me is one of the most uh broadly like integrated types of things in the world. We've got like science and philosophy yeah. and there's art and there's, you know, there's so many things that can come into it. It's kind of like chemistry for the the physical sciences and such. And um, to ignore it has been, I think a folly of ours uh, throughout yeah. time. Yeah. So, I, uh, I think, I think that's right. So, you know, like people have been obsessed with tattooing, you know, writing about tattooing for forever, basically, but, most of the people that have written about it, um, whether that's journalists or um, or academics, you know, for a mainstream audience, um, have been people who've been like, "Oh, this is weird. Let's write about it." <laughs> and of course, like that, that is not that is not necessarily the best way to kind of get a good in depth account. Yeah, there, there are some exceptions, of course, but like that's mm-hmm. that's basically it. And um, yeah, like you know, I, I guess I had the same kind of um, instinct as you in so far as. I was a teenager um, in the 90s, young kid in the 80s, like getting obsessed with tattooing and being a bookish kind of guy, like looking for things to read. And the more I read, the less it kind of tallied with what I saw with my own eyes, so to speak, you know, even in those early early days. And, um, and I stumbled into 
basically I, I, I'm an art historian. My PhD was in art history, but I came to that as a, as a way of trying to think about tattooing. Cause I think as a discipline, like art history is a way which you can almost put tattooing back into the story. Cause a, a lot of people that have written about tattooing as sociologists, anthropologists, archeologists, philosophers, whatever, they're not really interested in tattooing. They're sort of interested in other things a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, which is fine. But I think like to do, even to do those things properly, I think you have to go back to the stuff. Um, and, and yeah, like tattooing led me to our history. But I, you know, I, I sort of dabble in, uh, you know, uh, all those disciplines as well, you know, law, um, anthropology, criminology, yeah. like there's bits and pieces of that, that I'm reading all the time. Because, you know, art history makes this basic claim, right? That like we can understand people in the past by the stuff that they made. <laughs> and I think like, if that's true, if that's, <laughs> that's true great. for, um, you know, if that's true for like churches and museums and stuff, like it must be like particularly true for the images that people inscribe on their bodies, right? So yeah. it seems like quite an obvious thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> but as you know, I'm sure, Ian, like the amount of, um, you know, academic or even kind of popular books about tattooing, which don't really mention tattoo artists, for example, is quite surprising. Yeah. It's always, it seems like it's on the outside looking in. That's kind of why when I had started doing what I was doing, I felt very isolated um, getting into this. There's not a lot of um, foundational work that's been done where you can start building off of anything, science, whatever. It's always looking at a culture and their tattoos. There's always a buffer, it seems, you know, if you're going to go with like the yeah. sociological things like that. And on the science side, there's nothing. They're just starting yeah. to do stuff, which is mind blowing, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, all of the, all of that stuff with, um, with all the EU ink regulations yeah. where it's like, there's no data for if this stuff is safe or not. There actually has been a really, there has been one really good book in the last like six or seven years called, um, forensic tattoo inks which yep. is like this amazing like Got a copy chemistry <laughs> study it's like the, it's the, i recommend it to everyone because it's the weirdest nerdiest tattoo book i own probably and i own a lot of weird nerdy tattoo books i mean yeah there have been there have been interestingly again i think more than people have realized crossovers with tattooing and academic study right like samuel stewart old old phil sparrow yeah. who was a who was a professor of english in the 1930s and took up tattooing because it was a good way to meet hot boys but you know he's the guy he wrote a, he wrote a kind of good book um uh, although it's quite personal to him more than a general study in the 90s and he you know, he's one of the people that taught ed hardy to tattoo right yeah. like cliff, cliff raven was very educated like there, there have been these little moments of contact but yeah they're they're rare and and as you said, yeah, most most of this stuff or a lot of it is written outside looking in, you know. And and I wouldn't even call myself necessarily inside it, right? Like I'm not a tattoo artist. I'm um uh, I'm I'm still always negotiating those boundaries. But I I sort of have seen my job now as it's crystallised over the over the course of the last couple of you know couple of years or more when I've been finishing up the exhibition, doing the books, like as being a conduit between this more institutional world yeah. of museums and book publishing and whatever and and the the world of the tattoo industry which you know as you know is a difficult and interesting one to navigate it's why we love it yeah but that that, <laughs> that involves some real sensitivity and i don't always i don't always get that right but um 
I, I, I'm sort of as much, uh, I think I'm probably like, I've got one foot in each camp, right? Like I wouldn't call myself an insider necessarily, but I'm certainly not an outsider either. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's amazing because we, we need to have some type of pull between, I feel like academia, the industry, the public and politics, because if, yeah. if we don't have some type of scientific uh, backing, research, history, whatever attached to the things that we're doing, the politicians aren't going to listen. <laughs> when it comes to anything like regulations or even understanding what's going on. And and then you just have an industry on the outside that doesn't truly know why or what they're doing, but they're very I mean, loud. The, <laughs> the US case is a bit different, but like certainly in the UK, like British Taiwanese have been making that claim and trying to do that for 150 years or so, right? Oh, like, that's fantastic. Yeah, let's talk you know, about that. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, um, Lal Hardy, was writing letters to Margaret Thatcher in the seventies when the ban under on under under eighteen tattooing came in in the UK. Back in the fifties, you had like Les Scoose um, of the Bristol Tattoo Club, who was this real like nexus really for like global tattooing in the fifties, like really anchored like tattooing in Britain, in America, and in Europe as in this you know almost all on his own for for a while. Um, and he was, you know, he was very careful to talk to to, to to art schools and he's the first guy to put on an exhibition of tattoo art in the UK in 1971 and and he was kind of interested in talking to politicians and then like you know the guy that I talk about a lot Sutherland McDonald who was the first kind of real visible professional tattooer in in London in in 1881 like he was hanging out he was in fact, in fact he was tattooing he was tattooing members of the House of Lords oh. and, and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and members of Parliament and their sons and um, hanging out with, with baron, baronets and stuff. Hmm. So there's always been a kind of, again, certainly in the UK, I think the US story is a, a bit a different. Bit different. But, but in the UK, like, there has been this, you know, Birchett as well, right? There's, there's been an attempt to be taken seriously as a profession. Because it just makes your life a bit easier. <laughs> it makes your life a bit easier. Well, you know. Hmm. Um, how does that come about? Like, if we could talk about the culture, like, how is the culture different and distinct? I imagine you've done some type of comparisons between, we'll say, the U.S. like yeah. stuff versus the British side. Well, I think, funnily enough, you know, like, so the the first like pro shop in the western world if we can say that the first certainly the first person who's listed in a street directory as a working tattooer is uh, martin hildebrandt in new york city in 1854 mm -hmm. and like obviously he's not the first person ever to be a tattooer you know in fact there are you know even guys in london who claim to be doing what wasn't even called tattooing but you know, marking or whatever it was called back into the 18th century but 1850 is about right, like immediate post Japan uh, opening up. Like Martin Hildebrand is, but he's but he's in like Oak Street in New York City, like by the wharf, working in a saloon bar. Like it's rough <laughs> as fuck. Gotcha. Right. Um, and civil war gets in the way a bit, but by the 1870s, he's sort of trying to, you know, he's obviously trying to, you know, you know that saying, um, "Dress for the job you want, not the job you have." I yeah. feel like. A lot of tattooers were like, including him, were like advertising for the clientele that they wanted, not the ones they had. So they were like, I tattooed loads of women and I tattooed loads of members of the royal family. And the truth is, like, they they tattoo a few women and quite a lot of like 
mid-ranking aristocrats. <laughs> but but the but the stories but the stories are enough to attract that slightly higher-end clientele. Mm. And but it it it, it for a, between like the eighteen seventies and maybe like World War One, tattooing like flashes back and forth across the Atlantic. It comes to America as a fad from London, you know, picked up from what fashionable people are doing in London. In fact, this woman um, like runs away basically with her American boyfriend and uh, in, eight, in the 1870s and she's apparently got this mark on her leg across. And so the her dad puts her, if you see my daughter, like, you know, reward kind of notice. And then all the American press are like, oh, must be fashionable in England to get, <laughs> to get tattooed. Um, and in fact, this guy, this uh, the National Police Gazette, like, sent the reporter off to this uh, kind of like I think it's in Philadelphia, actually, like this weird house t- with a woman who's tattooing, you know, debutante women. Very odd. But it's reported there is this sort of fad from England. And then, of course, the middle classes in Britain are like looking at what American socialites are doing. They're not so interested in what the royal family are doing. They're seeing what what the members of the New York racket clubs and the you know um, the, the the fashionistas of the of that period are doing. And then it comes back to London as like you know what everyone's doing in the in in America. So it does kind of flip flip um, uh, back and forward. But the key difference, I think, in like the overall trajectory of the attitudes is to do with how we view our navies, right? So the American Navy, like right up until World War II, even after World War II, but, you know, certainly up until World War II, are this libidinous, like roguish, you know, um, uh, jackies, right? <clears throat> and there are stories around about the turn of the 20th century of like young girls in particular getting like seduced by sailor boys down in, down in New York. And it's happening in, in, uh, on the West coast as well. Yeah. And they're coming home with sailor tattoos and so it's like naval men are basically pretty dangerous, right. In the American tradition. Um, in the, in the British tradition, of course, naval men are, do have a bit of that of the kind of rum sodomy in the lash kind of vibe, but also like we have sailor Kings, Right, so, so George V, for example, was tattooed in Japan in 1881, um, and that relationship. Between, and and there are there are there are murals in the House of Lords, right? Huge murals commemorating the Battle of Trafalgar and the Battle of Waterloo, um, which feature tattooed men like dying for their country. So, oh. so, so tattooing doesn't kind of, you know, it doesn't it doesn't the, the, tattooing itself, and also this kind of association with with the sea and sailors doesn't quite have the same resonance in Britain as it does elsewhere. I mean, in France, for example, like tattooing gets banned or attempted to be banned quite early because there's a hepatitis outbreak. So in Europe, tattooing is pretty frowned upon, but because we have like tattooed Royal family members, like every member of the British Royal family who went to Japan between 1860 and 1910 were tattooed, for example, it was pretty public knowledge Tattooing gets to be a bit classier for a bit longer in Britain than it does in America. Oh, God. So I guess it seemed to be a, a bit more cosmopolitan just because at that time, British minds out exploring. Is there the protectionistic aspect of like the American side where we have like this this culture identity where we're just like everything has to be very American. There's There's controls on this stuff that maybe isn't as 
um, loose with with accepting new ideas and titles and things like this. Like we don't have a figurehead so far as like this is going to go out and be like this is what it's like to be an American because that's a yeah. debate right now. Um, is that yeah. something that's just very very like British? I guess could you say like. I think so. I mean, you know, in, in Britain, you have a you have a real two tier market, right? So the um, th there's these guys in the cities, particularly in London, but also in Edinburgh, um, uh, who are really tattooing rich people, basically. Okay. There, then then there's a kind of <clears throat> then there's a kind of mid market tattooing, which is a bit cheaper and a bit lower rent. And there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of competition around for that kind of market. In the US, I think it's much more flat in terms of, you know, you've got tattoo cultures in um, port towns. So in um, in New York, in Boston, uh, yeah. in San Francisco, in, in places where the, where the American Navy is. But while there are these wealthier people getting tattooed, those same tattooers um, are tattooing the wealthy people as well. So whereas in London um, you end up with this stratification of shops yeah, yeah. where like if you're a if you're a sailor or you're a, or you're you want a cheap tattoo you'll go to one guy if you want an expensive tattoo you go somewhere else in the US I guess also because of the you know the the not exactly true but kind of presentation of classless America <laughs> it's, it's yeah. a lot flatter yeah. you know like so mm. in um in about nineteen oh uh, I think it's like 902, something like that. Um, Amy Crocker, who is at that point like one of the richest women in the world. She was the um, daughter of a railroad magnate. Like her, there's still a bank called the Crocker Bank. Like she was like one of the richest women in the world. But rich people can get away with a lot of shit, right? So she um, <laughs> she was uh, she was basically getting tattooed. She got tattooed um, possibly in Japan with her first husband, and then. She basically like got tattooed by this Japanese guy, Horitoyo, who comes to New York. Um, but he was brought to New York via the UK from Japan by Samuel O'Reilly, who was you know, the kind of first uh, famous tattooer in America, I suppose, other than Hildebrandt. But Samuel O'Reilly was like, you know, as I said, he was he was tattooing on Chatham Square. He was in the Bowery. He was like. You know, he 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 got fined for tattooing children. Like, you know, he he was an amazing artist, but he was he wasn't exactly presenting himself as this salubrious character. But he also had like one of the greatest tattooers in the world working in this shop, and this very very wealthy socialite, one of the richest women in the world, felt quite comfortable going down to his shop and and getting tattooed. So, yeah, those those worlds collide. Um, uh, certainly in those early days of like the, the the professionalization of the industry, you know, the 1880s and 90s, right up until I say World War One, differently in the US than in in Britain. Well, I, I think that yeah, the the great illusion of their uh, lacking class uh, and social uh, yeah. structure in the United States is is kind of funny, but that <laughs> that, that does kind of ring true. It seems like what we're going to have is more like a cultural adaptation with the with the way the tattooing is done based on region nowadays, especially right as we move yeah. forward um, versus just having those, those separations between have and I guess have not. Um, I mean, weird. there's also an interesting kind of taste conversation, I think to be had about this as well. Right. So some of the, some of the early American tattooers are doing very fine work, like very light, 
very kind of gentle, very kind of graphic kind of work. Like if you look at the work of someone like Armand Dietzel, um, who um, was an immigrant uh, tattooer, but from who worked in Milwaukee, but he had this amazing, beautiful, soft style, um, similar to what was happening in in Britain, but very very quickly like that stuff gets certainly by the turn of the century gets kind of old hat in america and and your tattooers are doing stuff that's closer to comic books it's much thicker lines it's much Mm. more solid and that comes back to britain from an from an american um uh guy called uh albert colville gordon who comes from the US to tattoo in to tattoo in the UK? I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of connections between the scenes, and and, mm. and there's clearly a lot of conversation happening between because there aren't that many tattooers in the Western world at this point. So a lot of them are writing to each other, and a lot of them seem to know each other. Uh, and and there's traveling. So Sutherland mm. McDonald tattoos in Philadelphia for for a bit, for example. Gus Wagner claims to have tattooed in, or at least come to London. So there's a bit of cross cross fertilization, but the taste in London, partly because of this class differential as well, British tattooing stays a lot softer and gentler and thinner than American tattooing does. I think. Mm. Yeah, not as bold, I guess, as as we say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bold, bold. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. I think that that's kind of interesting because if, if we're looking at things and I've, I've traveled all over North America with my tattoo journey, I've noticed that we're in various cultures or regions, we're kind of lagging behind what the Brits do. And we do like what's cool there. I started to see like there wasn't as many people getting tattooed at a period of time. And I'm like, well, we're going to have a drying up of this society of yeah, tattooing yeah, yeah. here in the United States. But it's weird how it like it could take like maybe five years or three years in some place that's, you know, very, very hip and like a port town. When you start getting into the middle of the country, it can be 20 years behind. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's relaxed a bit. Yeah. Guess, you have that, I guess you have that media. scale, that issue of scale. Yeah. 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 But you know, now with social media, it's not, it's not like that. It seems to be that everyone is kind of almost flattened out. Like you had said before, where, where everything is, is a bit more muddled everyone is expected to do various specific styles that has been on trend with whatever is i guess hot <laughs> now right like we don't have the the movie stars and famous musicians uh plastered across <clears throat> any type of media sources now telling us what's cool it's kind of been taken back at least in the united states i've seen and put back onto the individual artists as, as sure. an institution is that is that occurring across the I think so it? I mean you know like when I when I was a kid right so I, I got obsessed with tattooing very young um mainly by w- watching well there were some tattoo stories in my family but but mainly I, I fell in love with tattooing really from watching WWF wrestling basically oh, yeah. like <laughs> you know yeah like mm. seeing the Undertaker and then seeing you know again to be honest with you like American bands Right, the grass is always greener on the other side. Sa- on the other side, right? Um, yeah. Although, my, as my dad says, once you get there, it still tastes like grass. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but mm. I was, um, that then led to me, you know, trying to find what I could find out about tattooing, and I was buying tattoo magazines, probably from when I was about fifteen, like going into London, buying punk records, and buying, uh, buying tattoo magazines that were import right largely things like outlaw biker review and skin yeah. ink and all of that stuff and so i fell in love and, and then i got copies of like um tattoo times when they were reissued oh, yeah. in the 90s and 
modern primitives and all that stuff. So I fell, and I fell in love with American tattooing really. And I, I fell in love particularly with kind of West coast stuff. Mm. So the, the stuff from the 1940s, Bob Shaw and Owen Jensen and Burt Grimm and, and then the kind of after lives of that in the nineties through Tattoo City with, you know, people like Dan Higgs and, um, that was stuff I fell in love with and it didn't look anything like the tattooing that I saw at home, you know, in my, in my, in my town in Essex, I I didn't see a lot of that stuff. I saw it in magazines. So I was like, just obsessed with like, with that, that kind of new wave, I suppose, of American tattooing of the nineties. And I mean, similar stories. It's really funny. If you look at those tattoo times from the, from the early eighties, like the, um, the, the music and the sea one, for example, like Ed Hardy comes to London in like 1981 and um he is so famous already in the tattoo scene in the uk that he gets recognized just for having a tattoo on his neck because it was that rare like lal hardy's like describes walking up the fulham road and seeing a guy with an eagle on his neck and going that guy must be ed hardy (laughs) (laughs) that's wild um Uh, so i mean but but, ed Ed had been in contact with people like dennis cockle and ron ackers and stuff in, in the uk but he was so he was really interested with in English tattooing and he talks uh he, and he has talked very fluent fluidly about about British tattooing and he when he met Lau and Lau was probably 20 years younger than him I guess something like that um you know Ed was super excited about what he was doing all this kind of punk rock tattooing like coming out right. of like late 70s early 80s London but all of the British people were like what's all this cool American stuff you know what's <laughs> what's all this Ed Hardy and crazy Eddie and 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 I think like that. Interestingly, I think that that communication. I mean, there's a funny enough. This afternoon, I was trying to write something about this guy called Rudy Inhelder. Do you know about him? No idea. No. Um, absolutely incredible guy who not enough people know about. He founded the Tattoo Club of America um, oh. in 1965. He's not a tattooer though. It's probably why a lot of people haven't heard of him. He was a he was just basically he was a skinhead guy from um, Switzerland. And he got, yeah, yeah. He was a nu- um, he was a nuclear physicist um, from from uh, from Switzerland, and um, uh, gay as a row of pink tents, like delightfully gay, really into skinhead music. He got a uh, he he read that um, Hans Ebertson um, Pierced Hearts and True Love book that came out in 1954, and was like. Fucking hell, what is this? I want to know more about it. So he wrote to Ebertson and said, Hey man, like, how do I find out more about this tattooing stuff? And Ebertson's like, You need to go to London. So Inhelder like gets on a, I guess, train and a boat and as a teenager goes to London and he meets Rich Mingins, he meets Les Scoose, he meets Jesse Knight. He, go- he basically goes to like the London Tattoo Club meetings and it's just like, This is amazing and this is what I want to do. So then um, he gets obsessed with tattooing. Um, he's, as I said, he's very gay and he, he likes tattooed guys. He gets a job in the 1960s um, working in the defense industry in the US. And, uh, but he can't meet any, anyone. He finds it really hard to meet hot tattooed guys. This is sort of the Sammy Hewitt <laughs> problems as, again. So he's like, I'm going to start the... Um, the, I'm going to model this on the on the Bristol Tattoo Club and the London Tattoo Club, which was the offshoot of the Bristol Tattoo Club. I'm going to do that, but in the United States, because mm. that will help me meet basically and meet guys to hook up with, <laughs> basically. 
And so that thus, thus the thus the Tattoo Club of America is born. And it has like their membership list from 1965 is like fucking amazing because it has like British tattoos on it, like Ron Ackers. It has Sailor Jerry in it. It has Crazy Eddie. It has um like all like every terror you will have heard of from that period. It also has loads of people that are in that kind of weird underground like body mod scene at the time, um, which you know, which pokes its head out to the world in modern primitives late you know, probably 20 years later. Yeah. But at that time, right, the tattoo scene is so small that like all of those people have to hang out together. It doesn't last long, it kind of fractures by the mid-70s. But like all of the all of the all of I mean, and it's funny, like they're uh, like Rudy puts out this mailing list or this this flyer that's like people who want to join the club. He sends them a list that's like, you know, why do you want to join? Are you interested in tattoo history? Do you want to trade photos? Photos of tattooed women? Photos of tattooed guys? <laughs> and so <laughs> it's a mailer for Dede. That's fantastic. Yeah. And oh, so he wow. can kind of intuit, right? But reading between the lines, like, oh, this guy's ticked like just doesn't want he wants pictures but none of women like maybe this is a guy i can talk to mm-hmm. and he became this like so like collector like nexus point for tattooing wow. in the uk and america for 30 years like he was still around the london scene when i was starting to get onto it in the in the in the 90s oh, right wow. he died in 2005 <clears throat> incredible guy um, real like that kind of scientist, like you know, kind of collecty kind of mind. Um, but but to go back to the point of the story, right? Is that those scenes, those those British and American scenes, are linked because they have to be because there aren't quite enough people that are obsessed. I mean, there's lots of tattooed people around, but the people that are obsessed with tattooing is yeah, quite yeah. small. Small, uh. and at that moment in time, it's, it's the scene is small enough to contain all of the artists, all of the conservative guys all of the perverts like p- people who are old people who are young like there's literally just sort of everyone is connected at that point and they're sharing flash and they're sharing ideas um i i helped get a collection uh by jesse uh, which belonged to jesse knight the first kind of real prominent female tattooer in britain who retired she retired in the late 60s but she was a member of the bristol tattoo club and her collection has stuff from uh, uh, Al Shafley and from uh, Sporting and Rogers and Chicago Tattoo Supply, like all of these people know each other and on our cross fertilizing, wow. and it's and it's super it's super fun. I mean, like as I say, it doesn't last very long. Yeah. Quite, by the time the seventies come around, again, sort of for respectability reasons, like when when gay rights is really getting getting in the swing of things. Um, there's a big fracture basically at the Houston Tattoo Convention in the 70s where uh, amongst other people funny enough Ed Hardy is like mm, all of these like piercing people and like gay guys uh, are making us look bad um, yeah. so we need to like n- like not have that at our conventions anymore um, which is a shame looking back on it and I think I don't think it was done out of anything other than kind of weird professional pride on ed's part but that 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 moment i think like the 70s becomes this like fracture point but until then like 
the modern scenes from the from the 1880s right the way through to the 1970s like for a hundred years british and americans are sitting are very intertwined in lots of ways that's that's amazing i I see that that fracture seems to still be happening you know like we see the piercing body mod you know like uh uh, primitive traditionalists forward have have kind of aggregated together and they're pushing so many things that are commendable you know like having a, a, a standards of practice and uh, <laughs> <laughs> continuing education and, and legislation and lobbying and things like this for, for understanding what they do. And I'm wondering if like tattooing maybe had pushed them down a bit further. It made it harder to, to come together because of that fracture. Yeah. I mean, I think like, again, the, the U S seems a bit different in terms of its local politics, but in like in Britain, again, there wasn't enough people to really like sustain that kind of fractiousness. So I mean, the, the AIDS crisis was another moment of problem um, when, you know, when, when HIV AIDS uh, pandemic began, there was a real like, you know, some, some, old, some of the older guard were like, we don't want to tattoo gay people. We don't want these. And of course, some of the younger people, not even the younger people, some of the tattooers that are a bit more into tattooing actually were like, aren't we meant to be weird and dangerous? Like, and how are you going to tell if someone's gay? Like what a stupid thing. <laughs> Um, but because because the because the gay tattooers didn't like again there's a I'm sort of simplifying here but but the the, the tattooers that really had mainly gay clientele let's put it that way the the tattooers that had gay clientele in London like they their customers by and large weren't going to get certainly by the 80s weren't getting tattooed by anyone other than the, 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 the tattooer they'd usually go to and so you know, actually, funny enough, if you if a client came into a, a more standard shop and said, "Hey, I want my dick tattooed," they'd be like, "Absolutely not! Go to see this. Go down the <laughs> right." Um, but yeah, like I, but you know, again, the more I've looked into this historically, it's it's funny how how because it begins, as I said, it's, it's all together. You find. Like, it's really funny to see, for example, as I said, like Sailor Jerry's name on the same list of people as Viking Navarrete, right, from Modern Primitives, this this body mod pierced guy. Like, they're part of the same club at the time. And the underbelly of, of, of image trading, all the Cobal stuff and the equivalents are happening in London uh, or in Britain with people like Bill Skoose, like... There's a lot of stuff happening like under the surface that no one wants to talk about. And now and now that generation are dying and their archives are becoming more public and people are becoming a bit more comfortable. Like it's funny how messy and interesting and strange these undercurrents uh become, you know. I wonder if that's if that's gonna uh protract any of, of these things happening. And it's it seems like like American culture is very loud. You know, like just hey, you know, everything is kind of. We're not very good at holding our cards close to our chest, and the Brits, from my experience, are opposites. You will never let anyone know how you're feeling, and you keep it very tight. And I'm wondering, yeah, is that is that, is that maybe gonna slow that that reintegration process where people are starting to connect? Because I'm seeing like major oscillations in the West here, like in in the states, where you yeah. have things falling in and out of favor. I mean, just like clockwork every five years. And I don't know if it's the same over there. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think weirdly, like tattooing is a very conservative industry. Again, as you know better than I do, I'm mm. sure, like from working within it. Um, 
so but of course the people that a lot of the people that i encounter in history and, and you know even the president really are people who've been by definition loud you know who've been talking to journalists talking you know talking to tv people talking to historians yeah and um you know all of those people again i've mentioned probably a lot of them already you know people like les and lao hardy and alex binney and lyle tuttle um all got a lot of criticism for that you know um and perhaps rightly so in some cases right but like on the other hand um it's always like you know everyone's all everyone's always kind of a bitching about their competitors yeah. like, i don't know if you've read <laughs> i don't know if you've read that book of letters between um ed hardy and sailor jerry um american <laughs> I, tattoo master I it before i was like jesus what you know? <laughs> so good because so ed becomes you know ed becomes close to lyle um but sailor jerry like hates lyle Tuttle like with a passion because he thinks he's too flashy and too and too you know too show-offy and he used to do really horrible things like he'd hand out flyers like to people saying oh this is a, a voucher for a free tattoo by my friend lyle <laughs> in san francisco <laughs> like, absolute dick move um yeah but that but those rivalries are very you know they're very common i'm sure they happen in other industries i mean the, the other thing that happened and this was funny something i wrote about a long time ago but Everyone always thinks it was better in the olden days. Yeah, I know. I don't understand this. This. I mean, I found. Thing. I. You know, I, I'm a, such a, as I said, I'm such a huge fan of like American traditional stuff, and I love all the kind of whip shading and everything. But you know, you talk to people that do that now, who do, the, and they're like, "Yeah, that's because that's what it was like in the old days." But like, I've got, I found quotes from tattooers from the '50s that are like, "Who are these fucking hacks that can't shape?" <laughs> <laughs> it's bullshit yeah using uh right it was it was better in the large. 30s yeah it's we always yeah. uh harken back to the yesteryear because we forget or we weren't there and we create that image or we weren't exactly that's uh, right that's right and i think you know so i think tattooing has its loud mouths and it's quiet people um probably everywhere but the the, the loud ones are the ones that, that that have been easier to see and survive in a historical record i mean you know we have i mean I, for example like you know I, i've mentioned like sutherland mcdonald who who i often say is like the first pro tattoo in britain and i talk about jesse as like the first prominent female but like there are definitely people before them some of them some of them whose names we have but literally nothing else other than their names and oh. they recorded on one document at one place that they were they were tattooing and like no one else knows anything about them um Tattoos are also bullshitters. I mean, I touched upon that yeah. a minute ago as well. <laughs> yeah. Right? It. Lying <laughs> about who they're tattooing, who they're not tattooing, how much that. But that's why we love it in a way, right? The mystique is part of the fun. Yeah. Um, but what that means, yeah, what that means is that you end up with a very particular kind of version of of history. Um, and and of and of and of the idea of what the industry. I mean, you know, one of the things I heard a lot when I was growing up was oh you couldn't get tattoo machines like until till the internet or until you know if, if there's something a bit older until magazines you know <laughs> of course like all the all the tattoos you've ever heard of were selling tattoo machines oh, yeah. by mail order right a yeah. hundred years ago um <laughs> like I, I i talk in my book about um these tattoo machines that were available over the counter in the department store in london in 1911 <laughs> so <laughs> 
So <laughs> it's not uh, it's not to say that not to say that tattooing is more um because I think actually the, the the actual story is tattooing has always been marginalized but it's been marginalized in probably different ways to that that people will remember because we what we know about the past and we know about the industry is filtered through the through the loud mouths and the, yeah. the quiet ones you know like the um so it's going all over the place here but like, going yeah, back to those, like the, the gay the gay tattoo stories you know like um another archive that i've um just helped get into a museum was the the images of uh that belong to a tattooer called mr sebastian um who was also the first kind of body piercer in the uk really um but he was you know he he came to he came to the he was a art teacher he was tattooed in london by uh by leslie bircher and by bill Scoos. he came to the us and was chatted by cliff raven and other people um but his archive essentially is photographs largely of men who you wouldn't know were tattooed if you saw them in their underwear right but like under their admittedly bigger than today 70s wife fronts or 80s wife fronts <laughs> they're in their entire their entire like arses and and, and are like completely covered in tattoos right? <laughs> <laughs> the undercarriage has been painted. The undercarriage has <laughs> been painted. Um, there's a really funny, there's a recording of him on um, on YouTube that someone uploaded. I think it must have been from like some student project or something uh, oh. back in the 90s before he died. And this guy goes, so uh, tell me, Alan, like, what's the strangest tattoo you've ever done? Thinking he's going to say, I don't know, like a portrait of Margaret Thatcher or something. And he goes, and he, he had the most beautiful voice like he has this cut glass like really mellifluous voice he voiced track for um throbbing gristle actually is how beautiful his voice was but i can't do it justice but he says um in his voice so yeah oh alan um what's the, what's the uh, weirdest tattoo you've ever done strangest tattoo you've ever done said, well I, I suppose the weirdest must have to be the time i tattooed the inside of someone's penis <laughs> <laughs> and uh <laughs> straight faced and this guy yeah 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 and this this whoever it is that's recording it probably some student radio journalist like from the from the late 80s is like absolutely like well i don't know what to say to that oh it's on youtube i'm sure people can look that up that's fantastic um, oh my gosh but they, but those but those are bits of tattoo history that don't mm. don't persist in the memory yeah. You know, but which are which 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 towers will tell you you know around a drink and, and those stories are things that people in the industry knew about. Um, but they weren't things that perc percolated into the, the wider conversation. And I think, yeah, like that's I I I I I'm sure and I'm trying to write a book at the moment that's more about these kind of interconnected histories of tattooing in the right. West and, and and these figures. But I just by nature of like where i am and who i know and who i talk to i know much less about the kind of unwritten histories of american towing than i do what's happening in britain and i'm sure there's a thousand a million such stories yeah. you know out there to be yeah, and, and and brilliant tattooers and their families and collectors and publishers like yellow beak and they're in bray's uh rakehouse books and stuff they're, they're, they're publishing really really great books on this stuff you know so it, the stories are coming That's out fantastic. now and it's, it's so exciting uh, I I have a few stories. Um, I, I've had a correspondence with Phil Fairweather, who is a pigment uh, producer. And he was like a fucking master's or PhD uh, chemist as well. Yeah. And uh, he's he's a wild guy. And he's telling me some of these stories. I'm like, you have to 
put these out here. Like this is going to be lost. And it's actually really important, I think, for history. And I think it's great that you're going to start tracking stuff down and keeping keeping this alive. Cause I I I think that maybe that that it's almost like propaganda in essence, right? Where we can just yeah. sweep it away as as time sees fit. But like keeping track of that is like it's really essential, I think, to keep Yeah, and those crumbs you know? are there, you know, like you know, sometimes I'm finding things in 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 sort of faraway corners, but a lot of stuff's out there in in plain sight to some degree, and it's joining up the dots a lot of the time. I mean, you know, like say that Jeremy worked with a um a PhD chemist as well to like develop ink recipes, for example. Um, I think like though, yeah, those intersections, because of course, like there's the a huge amount of tattoo history, certainly probably the overwhelming amount of tattoo history has been sailors and wrongers and ruffians. But like some of those sailors and wrongers and ruffians have also been, you know, like porters at the University of Cambridge or members of the House of Lords or PhD chemists or English professors or, um, yeah. you know, whatever you, you know, whatever you might like to imagine. Because again, we know that, right? Like tattooers, there's, I think it, you know, even back in the, back in the 1670s, like tattooers were saying, there's only two types of people: people that you know get tattoos and people that don't. And like, yeah, tattooing is more visible now, and and there's more people tattooed than ever, and the demographics are definitely wider and more diverse than ever. But at the same time, like, one of the things I track is like newspapers being surprised at who's getting tattooed yeah. now. <laughs> and um and i have oh, examples my. of those again going yeah. back 150 years you know more really like oh you'll never guess you never guess who tattooed that i mean like i i often get you know I've, i'm a university lecturer i've got tattoos on my neck but there was an article published in 1981 in london in this magazine called city limits it's like university lecturers are all getting tattooed now now of course like i probably wouldn't I've been able to get tattooed on my neck and my hands back in the 1980s, but like, there's a lot of shit going on underneath people's clothes. <laughs> like, yeah, this is what's interesting to me. Is, is that cyclic? Do you think? Like where we're seeing? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. I think I think it is. I mean, again, I I often get asked to talk about the future of tattooing, and I'm like, look, number one, I'm a historian, and number two, I'm a middle-aged man, <laughs> right? So don't don't ask me about the future. Uh. <laughs> But the way I respond to that normally is like, well, yeah, like people don't want their dad's tattoos. People want their granddad's tattoos. And that cycle sped up in the age of social media. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like, you know, a good, good example of that, Alex Binney. So Alex Binney, who is this young punk kid uh, in the 80s, like in squats, goes to art school. um, And goes and gets tattooed by like, a Mr. Sebastian, who was tattooing gay guys, and also tattooing tattooed by a guy called Mark Saint, who was the guy that did all the skinhead. Have you seen those like skinhead yeah, 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 photos yeah. from the eighties? Like this guy who would like prey on teenage runaways and tattoo England on their forehead. Like Alex, as a like art student, was like that's the coolest shit ever. <laughs> so he, so he went and um, he went and like began to tattoo his friends, and then he also, you know, he was getting hold of copies of modern primitives and stuff and he went to he made a pilgrimage he went to the u.s to go to san francisco right to go and get tattooed by leo zulueta and discovering black work and all that cool shit that leo was doing 
uh, and Alex brought it back to London and 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 started into you and like brought and yeah, but very quickly that spiky tribal of the nineties went from like the coolest cutting edge underground shit to like the most most you know, through kind of hipsterism, if you like, oh, yeah. at that time, to like the most generic on your builder on your on your on your cab driver kind of thing. And when I was, and I, you know, I'm a generation younger than him, when I was in when, um, starting to get tattooed in the you know, think about getting tattooed in the mid to late nineties and actually getting tattooed in the late nineties early two thousands, that shit was like I don't want to, I don't want any of that shit. You know, I want yeah. the cool like American traditional old school stuff. Yeah. And I had to, you know, I and it was again. I, I was inspired by it coming from the US because, but no one in the UK was really doing it at the time. Um, but again, very quickly that became very hipstery. And like now, I mean, I say now it's probably already over. But for a while, yeah. um, super super hip eighteen year olds who were getting tattooed, not just who got tattoos, but who were really getting into tattooing, were getting spiky tribal again. Yeah, you know. So I think I think that's it, right? People, all these, of course, like any like any fashion, like any trend, these things come in um, come in waves, and uh, you know, I, it would be folly to predict it. But I think I think that that cyclicality is exactly right. Yeah, yeah, it's a commodification of stuff now. It's like Amazon shopping on your phone. I've noticed that there's like a removal of the person. Like we don't see pictures. It used to be we were talking about this on a previous uh, episode where you'd see the body. And you'd have the personality of the person plus the tattoos and you could make up your mind when it was in the magazines. And now we've like removed it and we just have the body in an XY plane just set into a fixed image, you know? I think that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I think like certainly, certainly the portfolio, like the tattoos portfolio is much more like an Instagram page, I think, Mm -hmm. um, than a magazine. But you're right. We don't have tattoo photography anymore. And I'm, I'm just going, I said a lot of stuff I'm trying to put together at the moment is, fo- is is not staged photos um but they're photos of of people's people getting tattooed that they've taken mm. you know from the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and they're often they're often not close up nicely framed images of the tattoo they're of the process of getting tattooed they're of the aftermath of the so yeah i think you're right about that i i, mean, I think um this was again partly for me why it was so interesting to try and think about uh, this is sort of what my PhD was about, like the relationship between the artist and the customer, because that got lost actually, I think for a while yeah. um, in the early 2000s, like a lot of writing about tattooing, as I said, didn't really mention the tattoo artist and understood tattooing as this kind of, you know, self-expression of the yeah. individual get- being tattooed. And of course, like, again, as you know, as an artist, it's much more relational than that. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah. I think maybe I think I hadn't thought about it really, but I think maybe you're right that this um, this kind of like Instagram uh, flattening is maybe pushing that in a, in a different direction. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's probably true. Yeah, canvasization. I don't know if that's really a word or not. What we're having, I think we we see a, a big boom between like 2000 and 2005 with the television shows coming out, and and like we've seen right. with every other self help television show, everyone who watched. Mike Holmes on Holmes thought that they could build an extension on their home. A lot yeah. of people got into the industry with no, <clears throat> with no apprenticeship. And so we had almost like a yeah. watering down of things where people were focusing more on technique and art than that connection. And so those people started to train the next generation who were pushing the same thing. And I think it's moved more towards art now than expression. And they were just like, yeah, that person, right? When you go shop, when you like go looking for tattoos and you look at something, you're looking at a style that someone has as well. There's never like a book of business where you were 
judged on the competence competency of your work as a whole. It's just, can you do this one thing? It's like shopping for shirts. You're scrolling through. Yeah, oh, yeah, I yeah. like that one, you know? <clears throat> and it's weird because yeah. it's that pendulum swing in society where it's, I'm, I'm imagining that, especially with AI now, where we're going to be able to remove some of these, these aspects of art creation that need to be done, it's going to swing back into application, right? That's, well, I think, I, you know, I, I end up sort of, I've got a few kind of cliches that I often say when I'm talking about this stuff, but one of them is like, you can't buy a tattoo on the internet, right? So yeah. one of the few things that you can't buy on the internet, um, that and a haircut really is probably, <laughs> the only, probably the only things left. Right? Yeah. And so, and so that does require this kind of, you know, in, and I think that makes it, makes tattooing increasingly interesting and complicated. I think the, you know, being touched by a stranger and, leaving the house and talking to people has always been an important part of the yeah. the beauty and the joy of tattooing as well as the the terror of it, I suppose. But, um, but you're right that it, it is very flat. I mean, there are more, there are more amazing tattooers now than ever before. Oh, right. But it's very rare, very rare. I mean, I guess say I'm not as engaged in like the contemporary stuff as I, as I was when I was younger, or necessarily so. Right. But it's very rare that I see a, a, a young new tattooers that really, freaking blow but like doing something really interesting and original and often the people that are doing that um are tattooers who understand where they've come from they understand yeah. their history they understand the and i don't mean that in a kind of quite trite like identity way of like well i'm a you know i mean that they they understand like the limits of the form and the possibilities of the form and they're pushing it in really interesting directions and they're often people uh, again, this is probably a self-selecting sample in a way, but there are often people that I talk to who are who are interested in history and interested in in thinking about it in a much more careful way than, as you said, like just reproducing a style. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I know. Speaking of like loudmouth tattooers, uh, I've been really impressed with Bang Bang in New York, who I guess a lot of stick for being a celebrity tattooer, and again, some of that's probably well deserved i don't really know but like that guy and that shop is hiring like some fucking interesting tattooers yeah right like to the absolute credit of that shop which could like a lot of people who made their name tattooing celebrities rest on its laurels i i write um occasionally write visa letters for their artists like to to try and help them with their visa applications and part of that i have to like look and study their work and think very carefully about you know what it is that they're doing and i think like his shop and there are others you know song blur maxime shops oh, yeah. that are in la and again he gets a lot of criticism again maybe some of it deserved i don't know i've known maxime for a long time but i mean just just for tattooing like those guys are hiring artists who are setting trends most of the time mm-hmm. not yeah. not following them and that's that's hard you know that's difficult but that's what that's what great tattoo artists you know whether we're talking about samuel o'reilly back in the 19th century or or lal hardy in london in the 90s or ed hardy that's what good tattoo artists have always been doing they've been hiring young artists who are great and um i think probably maybe that's what you were that what's what you're referring to about this like lack of apprenticeship thing like people who people who who who, who see tattooing as in a much more commercialized way haven't got that i mean you know george bone right for example is still tearing he's like 82 years old he's four days a week that doesn't nice. have to do that no <laughs> that's he was a, 
He was the most tattooed man in the world in like in the 1960s, or at least was in the Guinness Book of Records. But he fucking loves tattooing, man. Like he fucking loves it, right? Like he'll bitch about it and and slag it off and be grumpy about it. But like uh, underneath it all, he loves tattooing. And all the tattooers that I speak to who are still around tattooing, like late in life, mm-hmm. you know, guys that are retiring in their 60s, 70s, still running shops. Like, yeah, they're all grumpy old men and old women in some cases, but they love they love tattooing in a really pure way. And I think that's probably what there's it is missing from a lot of this much more generic stuff because their relationship to it is not quite as um you know, not quite as enriched. But that's isn't that true of like all culture though? Right? I, yeah, I teach culture's very flat now. That's, that's that's fine. <laughs> well. Yeah, I remember in the for the push for more meaning in designs uh as a rebellion, I think to the flash wave that happened from the 70s to the 90s, people started to as the, appropriate images from different cultures because of the mm. meaning. When I started tattooing, <clears throat> I remember people coming and saying they wanted the koi fish. Like, why do you want a fish on your body? And and then they would go into, you know, such depth about what this is supposed to mean. It's like if they adorn themselves with it, then they're going to have this power. And uh, it was really neat. But now I'm seeing the sway kind of back to the other way, you know. And um, I think having that connection to the past, like you were talking about, is really important, you know, to to try and tie these things together. Otherwise, it's just going to continue to be. And I think to have it, and again, this is something which I think... definitely reasonable people might disagree with me on but also i think having it go from the direction of 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 of, of i want a tattoo rather than so like you know um tattoo television which you talked about that was a big driver of the like narrativization of tattooing and oh there's absolutely sociolo- there's a sociologist of tattooing called michael atkinson who uh in the 90s wrote about maybe early 2000s wrote about this and he said like and I think it's true. He's like, you know, people learn to narrativize their tattoos, right? We all saw those shows where people would come in and say, um, my dog died, my dad died, uh, my sister got <laughs> run over, so I want like three flaming skulls on my arm, yeah. right? <laughs> to remember them by. <laughs> but, of course, what they really want is a tattoo, and then they think they've got to come up with a reason for getting one. And I think yeah. some of that kind of, example that you were talking about is that it's people not really loving tattoos or, or or not having even if they do love tattoos not having the 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 bravery or the courage to to get tattooed and then work out why they want to do that mm, and they think they, they have an excuse to... yeah an excuse yeah. yeah and i think like maybe there is there is definitely a um a version of that that is that is um is dismissive you know yep. that doesn't take take tattooing seriously and that upsets me deeply um and i got very upset and i still do get very upset watching those videos of the the guys and again like whatever floats their boat it's not for me that, that those guys that do that real kind of like brutal black stuff yep. that's like just very anti-aesthetic i mean I, I get it i understand why they do it but it upsets me because it's it's disconnecting from from for me what what tattooing has been but mm-hmm. what what i what i what i want yeah as was as you're saying is finding the the right moment in that pendulum to sort of go i love tattooing i'm gonna find and, and it, again it's a cliche of mine but i say you know tattooing is a medium not a phenomenon right use tattooing yep. to express what you want to express mm-hmm. don't just kind of go 
on the one hand, I want a tattoo, slap it on me, you know. Yeah. Uh, or on the other, or on the other hand, I'm going to come up with this like novel, and you, the tattoo artist, has got to render it perfectly for me. Like, there must be some middle ground there in. Yep artist client relationship yeah that's that's something we've actually been pushing for the past couple of years here i mean past the research side of stuff is trying to understand the psychology of clients and um, yeah. <clears throat> i think that middle ground is when you have somebody who wants to experience something and is willing to sacrifice themselves through pain and money and the care afterwards to to mark themselves with some indelible space in time like every time that you get yeah. a tattoo if you look at it as a client uh, you remember so much about the experience or even the time preceding it and, and uh, following. Like it's it's this like space where you have had to, through pain, <laughs> identify something that is personal or not. Like the three yeah. skulls because of the dead dying family members. <laughs> yeah. Even if it's, even if the, the imagery And the dogs, moot. don't forget the dogs. And the dogs, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if it's moot, they're still forcing themselves through a process to, to honor, I guess, which might be like, maybe a bit fucking wooey on this yeah but, no no, no i think i think that's right and i think even if you're maybe even especially if your your goal is like i i i love tattooing and i want to get tattooed that's itself a, a decent enough reason and there's a subtle difference there i mean i i'm also interested this is something which i um i i take from uh another tattoo academic i think she's not really doing much stuff anymore but called nikki sullivan who wrote a book back in the 2000s called tattooed yep. bodies and in that she talks about Got that over there too. People's relationship. Yeah, yeah. It's not, not many people read that book, but it, 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 she talks in that book about people changing their relationships to, to tattoos over time. So they do have the function that you described of like anchoring a moment in time, but also our our feelings about them change over time mm -hmm. as well. So the example she gives in the book, of course, is like this guy who comes out of prison and he has like hate on his knuckles. And he meets someone and he's all reformed and happy. And this person says, why have you got hate on your knuckles? You're so nice. And he's like, oh, no, it means happiness all through eternity. Or the more straightforward example is, you know, someone comes in, gets their boyfriend's name. And when they get it done, it's like, I'm going to love him forever. And when he leaves, uh, leaves you for, you know, the postman or whatever, it's like, I'm never trusting people ever again. Like, the same yeah. image takes on different meanings. I was struck talk about a bit a bit about this in 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 uh in my book as well about De dennis rodman who i think is such an interesting pivot point in the history of tattooing for all kinds of reasons but um he obviously talks about his tattooing and he's written like written he's like had written for him or with him like three autobiographies and in all three of them the narrative of his tattooing like changes subtly yeah. because for him they they're these for him, it's this creative moment of like rebelling against the machine of the NBA and against heteronormativity and, you know, trying to balance his, um, his mental health and his gender identity and his fame and his race and his sexuality and, and his, his sporting success, all of this stuff, balance all that. And he, he talks about his tattooing becoming this way through which he navigates his relationship to his teammates, to his employers, to his culture. But he, in in one of his autobiographies, he remembers quite clearly. He's like, "Oh, I I wasn't allowed." He said, "I wasn't allowed to get tattooed when I worked when I was at the San Antonio Spurs, right?" But you can like pick up, you can find photos of him. He's got a couple of tattoos on his arm, like he's not heavily tattooed. Mm -hmm. But that first tattoo moment, right, which for all of us I think is quite um, profound, 
he misplaces it in time to like better fit the narrative of how he feels about his tattoos 30 years later. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I thought when I noticed that, I was like, such an interesting instructive example because yeah. those tattoos become a you know they, they become a they become a um, uh, I, I don't like the word diary i don't like that metaphor but they, yeah. be, they become a kind of marker point of a, of a moment in history this is the art historian in me they become an index of a moment in time on the one hand which mm-hmm. we can look at as, as from ex- from outside as historians and observers and talk about but for him on the inside his relationship to it is more complicated than that and i think like this is again what those those kind of client narratives of like i his art art doesn't work like that right like art doesn't work other than in very very limited cases i suppose it doesn't work with like x image equals y feeling forever yeah no it totally changes yeah particularly where it's on our body and so that negotiation where those relationships between meaning and and identity like shift i mm-hmm. this is what fascinate me and 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 really kind of um yeah, drive what I'm super interested in because yeah that they, they, they sort of work against different different kinds of narratives from different directions you know mm-hmm. I wonder the naivete of, of folk when they come in to get some of the the first ones I, I think it's usually within the first like five to ten the the idea about that attachment and defining stuff seems yeah. to be prevalent and then as it goes on it, it slowly becomes more and more about the process or filling a, a separate yeah. need right and uh, I wonder. Yeah, if there... well, the first one, the first one's the hardest one, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I wonder <laughs> if there's a sense of shame attached to some of these things that are going on because it's so complex. When you do go get your first one, you know what I mean. When you sit there and like sacrifice that part of your body, it, we get caught on the the idea that it's going to hurt, what the procedure is going to be like, and we put all of this time and effort into the actual design, and when you get it maybe it doesn't meet or exceed those expectations. Yeah. And we slowly start lowering that bar until we get just something that looks fucking rad. <laughs> and we're like, yeah. that's the best tattoo I got. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's probably, I mean, that's probably good, actually. I think some of the issues you were talking about earlier on are affected by the, perhaps the lowering of that barrier to entry. Mm. I mean, on our on our podcast um, a couple of weeks ago, we did an episode about this, like, nonsense, like, disappearing tattoo ink thing that doesn't actually disappear. <laughs> Um, yeah. and we, and we talked a bit about the history of that, you know, it turns out, turns out you can't get tattoos that disappear. It turns <laughs> out. Um, it's much more complex. And e- yeah. yeah. And even if you did, they'd look shit for most of the time you had yeah. them. So, but we talked a bit about that on that, me and Tom about this lowering of barriers to entry. And I think part of it is also driven by, by laser technology. So as tattooing gets easier to get, people become less cautious about that first one. And I yeah. think, you know, maybe that maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing. I don't want to gatekeep this stuff, but I think it does. Um, it it has changed the culture of tattooing. I think mm-hmm. um, quite quite profoundly. Um, uh, it's difficult to know which direction the, um, the, the is the causal relationship, but yeah, I think like uh, people who get even people who get a lot of tattoos now aren't necessarily into tattooing. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a shame. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know. It's a shame. I agree. Yeah. Um, but but on the other but on the other hand, you know, like I'm sure there are people getting better tattoos, cooler tattoos, more interesting tattoos. I mean, there are definitely people doing that than ever before in history. So there were upsides as well. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yes, that. Yeah, that. and I think I guess like again, I'm not an artist. I just have to look at this stuff from outside and talk to, to talk about it. But uh, for you guys as working artists, it's really difficult to navigate these things because I, uh, I mean, you can again, you can see this in history too. But I talking to, to, to tattooist friends of mine who have to deal with this on a day to day basis. You have some people who come in and are still very, you know, very kind of over narrative and like here's the script. And yeah. like, no, I just want to get on with the design. What do you want me to tattoo on you? Mm-hmm. Um, and on the other hand, people come in and, and do, you know, uh, treat it very disrespectfully and quite flippantly. Um, yeah. Must be difficult to deal with. Uh, you know, that old story about um, Spiderweb, again, talking about like talking about con- controversial figures from tattoo history. Oh, Spiderweb, yeah. who was tattooing in New York in the 70s, he, used to, he was like, you know, he was a conceptual artist, um, went to art school, pissed off, pissed off Ed Hardy about something amongst other people um but he he used to do talks in universities and he would say like hey who wants a free tattoo right and of course like loads of these kids put their hands up like yeah i want a free tattoo it's like in the 70s and he's like okay i'm gonna tattoo your nose green and all those hands went down real quick yeah (laughs) um and you see that now, you know, people do like flash days, like whatever, yeah. $15 tattoos or yeah, whatever. Right over 13th and, and, deals. Yeah. yeah. And and people and people queue around the block to get to get get a cool cheap tattoo. But then even then people are like, oh, can you change it a bit? Can you do something different? Can yeah. you do so that 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 kind of changing expectation or 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 or, or, or breadth of expectation makes makes your job really difficult. I mean, I'm I'm very glad I'm I get to be outside it looking in yeah. from that point of view. Yeah, I can see that. I think it also depends on how long you've been in, right? Because if you always see like a diversification as you start hitting like your 20 year mark, like where where I'm at right now, where you have to start focusing on something to stay relevant and to stay active in the business. So like I take a lot of time with all of my clients to to funnel down the empathy of the design and include them in everything while other people are not doing that. And I think it's probably just because I don't really care about the process anymore as I've learned more and more about the science behind it. Uh, yeah, so I can, yeah, yeah. I can sit and think about some of this stuff, but um, maybe, maybe that's also kind of like what, what happened with the watering down of, of everything over time. When we started getting more people, it's turned into like a trade now where you can have, you know, amateurs possibly like journeymen masters, and then people who are moving past that to innovate. And uh, yeah, I wonder if that's, I wonder, it'd be interesting to see if that would work if we actually have academics pulled into this to to help kind of steer that moving forward. And if that's going to create that that break, you know, we have people who build homes and people who study how yeah. to build homes, you know? Yeah. I yeah. I mean, maybe. I think like, as I said, tattooing has been so conservative. And I, I think in a way, like, so much of the industry has been driven by um, these, you know, and we're talking here about like professional non-normative western tattoo but like so much of the industry has been driven by these weirdos you know yeah who've been who've been passionate about machine building ink chemistry whether or not they had any training or not some of them did most of them didn't some of them went to art school some of them didn't like some of them were tattering because it made them horny some of them were tattering because um you know it 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 paid the bills in the off season from Mm. some other thing that they were doing you know like tattooing as an industry has always been um created championed by all these beautiful weirdos uh who who have this kind of you know 
all of the people whose names I've rattled off um, are people who I really admire because they're all, you know, even people who I don't think I'd get on with in person, like Sailor Jerry, who was clearly a very difficult man. But he was insanely smart, like yep. fascinated with tattooing. He was, even while he was being horrifically racist towards Japanese people, he was like working with Japanese uh, artists on designs and working with PhD chemists on inks and fiercely defending tattooing as an industry lots of the tattooers who who i who i love historically and in the present are people who have that mix of like you know art craft innovation strangeness anti-social sociality and i think like by the very nature of 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 what it means to get a tattoo particularly in this you know as i said in, in an age where really there's nothing else like it um perhaps other than a other than um, other than getting a haircut, the, 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 unless you're unless you've got that about you, unless you are that kind of weirdo, you're not going to last very long in the industry. Yeah. I think that's kind of basically what it is. And um, you know, I think yeah, that that for me is like is where like all all of the all of the tattooers in the present and the past who I really admire, whether they have formal education or not, and increasingly of course tattooers do have some kind of formal art training, but but have been kind of obsessives, you oh, know, yeah. whether it's writing, documenting, yeah. photographs, building machines. Sutherland McDonald was trying to create ink colours and like had to cut chunks of like toxic yellow pigment out of his arm. Um, you know, like yeah. uh, as I said, you know, Sammy Stewart was was um, got into tattooing because he loved Sailor Boys, but he also was fascinated with Japanese tattooing, and he risked getting beaten up very frequently. Um, but lived this kind of joyous failure of a life. Um, Ed, who is wicked smart and incredibly talented as an artist and a real great advocate for the industry for all of his conservatism but he again it was like you know he was obsessed with tattooing forever and everything he's done has been in the service of that and i think like i mean i you know i've, I've always said as well right uh, this is something that i uh, a lot of my academic forebears have not done i don't want to come and be like tattooing is an art form now right <laughs> The academics have arrived. <laughs> it's like when I first started oh. out, I got I got some shit from tattooers in America, actually, and right, actually, rightly so, right, because tattoo doesn't need me. Um, you know, although I I hope I I hope uh, people in the industry think I've given stuff back. I, I'm very pleased when people tell me that tell me that. And there are there are moments when talking about tattooing as an art form is useful. I did that. Uh, in Japan, for example, when tattooing was at risk of being made illegal. But mm. I'm not, tattooing doesn't need scholars to come in and go, well, turns out no one's noticed how great you are. I'm going to take you seriously. Um, that's not what I'm doing. I want to say it's really interesting if we use the tools of art history to examine tattooing. I don't, I'm not here to bestow upon it the label of art. And some, some tattooers <laughs> love that label of art. Yeah. And some some resist it. Some much mm-hmm. prefer to call themselves craft people, and like that's fine. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I think that's. I think there's you know there's kind of art historical conversation to be had about that. But I, I'm not here to either claim all tattooing is art or some tattooing is art and some isn't. Like it's just it's bullshit. Um, yeah. 
so much more complex than that. <laughs> yeah, and I think well, this is sort of what annoyed me about the about the disappearing ink thing as well. It's these oh, fucking chemists. Yeah, we were like, well, we can create a tattoo ink that disappears, and they got twenty million dollars of, of round A fucking venture capital funding. Yeah. That's right. gone. And then, hey, <laughs> well, it's gone. And then two years later, the tattoos haven't gone. No. Yeah. Right. This so is, that's this, it. When uh, when when oh. people stumble into this universe without the care and the respect and the love and the yeah. caution, um, you know, e- even people that have come in like Alex Binney to to, to you know to, to destroy it, you know, who are like fuck fuck tattoo, I'm going to make it better and stranger. That's come from a place of love and joy. Absolutely. Um, and I think all of what we see, all of what I see that's, that's kind of bad about tattooing in so many ways is because it's not coming from a place of love. It's not coming from a place of respect. And I think that's you know, that, that's what it is for me. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, I think all tattooers that I've met, and I've met countless and uh, you've <laughs> doing this, um, we all start out for the first five years thinking that we can create something in our image because we're creative people. So we're trying to yeah. make our mark and make our stuff make sense because we don't know what the fuck we're doing. And then the longer <laughs> that you're in it, the more you understand how big that this this industry is, right? It's, it's a fucking machine. Yeah. And I don't think that, like where I'm at now, I don't want to change it. I just want to help. You know, yeah. and you've been involved with this. Well, you can't. Time, you you know? can't change it, right? Oh, fuck no. You I mean, can't. I was really... <laughs> You, have you heard of a guy called Adam McDade? He's mm. a tattooer in he's a young tattooer in Britain. Um, but he did a PhD uh recently in a practice-based PhD where he basically like documented his apprenticeship. Oh wow. Um and reflected on it as as artistic practice. And I was his examiner. Um and it was such an amazing I think he's gonna he's turning it into a book, so there'll be a book of it eventually, I think. Oh. But his was such a beautiful piece of work because, you know, as I said, I spend my life reading about tattooing, but tattooists' voices, certainly in history, are um, are muted. You know, there are, as I said, there are exceptions, but you don't often hear a tattooer reflecting in that detail, certainly not in a publicly accessible way about what they've gone through and their relationship, as you said, to like that anxiety of making the first mark on the skin to mm-hmm. figuring out what kind of artists they're going to be to figuring out how they fit into the industry and all this stuff. And Adam did this autoethnographic fine art practice PhD, basically about his apprenticeship and art starting to think about some of those questions. And it's the most interesting thing I've read on tattoo for ages. Um, his thesis, because exactly as you were saying, like he, those questions are really important questions, but, um, and I know tattooers talk about them with each other. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's not something that, that ever gets really kind of talked about in a bigger in a bigger forum, I guess. No, it doesn't. Yeah, it's it's uh, varying levels of secret society. <laughs> yeah, and that's good in a way. I mean, again, that's 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 okay. I think that's well, all right. I think it's partly why partly why we, why we love it. Um, yeah. So, but but, but it you needs to be negotiated in, in the right way. And I think yeah, that that ego yeah. thing is super interesting. Like you can't. Um, if you come into tattooing thinking you're going to change it rather than it's going to change you, like you've already started off on the wrong, um, on the wrong foot. Right. I wonder how many plumbers do that. You know, I'm going to go and do something about plumbing. You'll see my name in lights. Probably. I mean, like, <laughs> so McDonald claimed to have coined the word tattooist. He didn't quite, but it certainly caught on after he started using it. Cause he said, he, he said tattooer made him sound too much like a plumber. <laughs> so, 
so tattoo is you know <laughs> 1980s that's amazing yeah it's, it's it seems interchangeable now people say like if i'm doing a service i'll be a tattooer slash tattooist and if i'm creating art on someone's body i'm a tattoo artist We've yeah see that that's the, that's the thing for me as an art historian it doesn't really make any sense like you know art historically but I, mm-hmm. I i understand it as an identity label and i think it's it's really really just you know comprehensible as a label identity yeah. it doesn't really work doesn't really work as an art historical label, no. label. yeah i i just say <laughs> i do tattoos that's where i'm at yeah. now <laughs> i do tattoos i don't know yeah yeah what do you guys think? <laughs> that's my job i try to do it as best as i can right <laughs> That's cool. Well, thank you very much for for coming on and chatting with us. Oh man, thank um, you. It was a bit all over the place, but um, that's how we go. Hopefully, hopefully it was okay. <laughs> right on. I think that's that's. Didn't mean to start that again. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, I forgot to do one thing with you as well, which I guess. Oh. <laughs> I forgot. We got to do our we got to do our closing thing here. So. Oh yeah. I, yeah, I've got the yes or no with uh, Doctor Matt. So. <laughs> I forgot. I was just having fun chatting with you now. I'm like, I'm so fucking hungover too. And so like here, I hope that I kept up. My brain was literally just like, you know, um, that's awesome hearing you talk that you're very good at speaking. So I'm glad that you're teaching, but we'll, we'll go into the, the, uh, uh yes or no, uh, British culture questions. So BBC. Uh, oh, that's not a yes or no question. Um, <laughs> Sadly, BB. Okay, BBC. Anything other than news? Yes, BBC News. A sad and resigned no. That's gone downhill very quickly in the last few years. I wonder <laughs> if they're owned by Rupert Murdoch now. Uh fan of queues. Oh, love a queue. <laughs> love a bloody queue, mate. I'm actually that. That was a bit. I'm also like half Australian, so the Australian half of me loves a queue as well, mate. Oh, that's fantastic! Oh, I just lived in there for about a year. <laughs> I fucking loved it, and I, I don't like the burgers that they make down in Oz. Uh, <laughs> put beetroot on it, and I was fucking kind of confused when that happened. Um, <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, do you think that British people apologize more than Canadians? Mm, about different things, probably. <laughs> there you go. Right on. And uh, if we don't, we should. <laughs> shake hands or kiss cheek? Which one is the problem? Um, shake hands. I mean, I lived in I lived in Europe for a while. Uh, yeah, shake hands. Yeah, a little bit better, especially now. Um, <laughs> do you have central air conditioning uh, in your home? No? Okay. Well, I was going to call you a posh fuck if you did have it, but that's fucking hilarious. Uh, <laughs> Nobody has air conditioning. <laughs> I know it's a balmy six degrees out in Portland right now. Um, oh my God. The, one of the coldest I've ever been was in Portland. I got stuck in a fucking ice storm in Portland <laughs> and had to dig a dig a car out of like <coughs> wheels getting frozen. Yeah, we have a snow warning on again. It's six, and I was using Celsius not Fahrenheit because... <laughs> Americans, I don't know why. Yeah. A hundred for boiling water. What is up with this random base twelve shit? Um, tikka masala. Oh, um, I'm vegan, but um, I, I figured find a vegan version for sure. That's why I didn't say the chicken on that one. I figured that you got some <laughs> good ones there. Um, are you confrontational or do you tut? Oh, both. Tuts, <laughs> tuts are confrontational. That's not a um. That's not an oppositional categorization, my friend. <laughs> If you get if you get tutted at you are that is that, that is that is pistols at dawn. Uh, uh, 
Uh, cats or dogs? Uh, cats, hundred uh, percent. I've got, as I said, my uh, mic is covered in um, hair. I've got a lovely little Bengal mm-hmm. um, called Ursula. My mum used to have a boarding cattery, so we had seventy cats at a time. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, dogs are weird. <laughs> uh, are you a person who likes to hold the door? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can do that. Like, what the fuck kind of question is that? Yeah, obviously, <laughs> Americans not so you, much. <laughs> you like the joy of watch, watching it swing back and hit someone. <laughs> I, I, so there's the distance gap, right? So if somebody's thirty five feet away, I feel like it's a good idea to hold the door just so you can make them uncomfortable. Because <laughs> then, you know they're at a hundred feet, you're like, don't worry, I'm holding it for you the whole fucking time. You never break eye contact and just look at them, right? Smile, have a good oh. day, you know. It's <laughs> rough. Um, <laughs> what's this? Uh, escalators. Are you a stander or a rusher? Um, well, as long as you stand on the right. Um... That is again. That will get you tutted at <laughs> on the London Underground. If you, if you don't stand, if you stand on the left, oh, you're in trouble. Oh, it's you drive left, stand right. Like it's it, it, this is how That's we right. walk and pass here. Yeah. Uh, do you have any carpet in your toilet? Uh, in your in your washroom? No, not any. <laughs> no, I did growing up though. I did growing up. Walter carpeting up there is wild. <laughs> yeah i mean not so much anymore but certainly when i was growing up in the 80s i had a, a lovely kind of um like how would you describe it? like puce colored carpet basically <laughs> and a and a and a and a furry tattoo lid cover as well like a kind of uh like towelette towelette kind of fabric <laughs> seat cover they're gonna i'm sure they'll make a comeback Oh, I'm hoping so. I forget about those ones. I've got babies, so and they're they're not as well trained as they should be. Um, warm or cold pints? Um, depends what you're drinking. Um, I think like uh, a lot of I love American IPAs. A lot of IPAs, very uh, cold, good. Um, like if you're drinking something like Guinness, like those fucking cunts who have like Guinness extra cold, get out. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, but, you never want a warm pint. Just, just, just. It's just chilled or or very chilled. I guess is what, I what yeah. we go for. <laughs> uh, bubbly or still for water? Oh, still water every time. <laughs> my 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 wife loves sparkling water, and it's weird. I, I once heard it described as um like drinking bat drink. It's like drinking licking a battery. <laughs> and that's 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 pretty that, i fucking hate sparkling water my wife loves it yeah, she just exactly. i won't have it unless it's got bubbles in it i'm like oh it's fucking weird <sighs> um uh bike uh train transit or car um well i do um i i would prefer a car i prefer a train actually i love it love a nice train journey um i can drive um i don't cycle really i don't have a bike actually so train unless it's inconvenient which in- increasingly it is again thanks government <laughs> um so so tr- yeah so so train train preferably mm. over car do you, do you do automatic gratuity or do you tip solo um well this so god this was the whole twitter thing last week about americans and tipping culture yeah. um we don't have yeah we don't have a tipping culture because we have minimum wage laws uh, <laughs> <laughs> fucking dying or um, that's fantastic fucking, yeah but um but yeah uh 
it really catches you out uh, as a as a tourist in America because everyone thinks you're a cunt and you're like, no, just charge me what it costs, people. <laughs> yeah, we we tip like we tip we tip in Britain. Um, for the purposes, I presume tipping was intended when like when you've had a really really good time. Um, you will leave a tip as an extra thing. Like your your servers are not getting going home hungry or not getting paid unless you tip them twenty percent or a dollar a drink or whatever uh. it is in the US or whatever. So so yeah, like no, um twelve uh, percent is normally added automatically in most restaurants and uh, you don't it's so funny actually when Americans come visit and they're like chucking money around and everyone's like, Who the fuck does this guy think he is? Fucking high roller. Who you think you're fancy? Yeah. So, so cabs, <laughs> cabs, taxis, you just round up, keep the change, mate. Yeah. Um. So that you know, that's normally not that much as a percentage. Food in restaurants normally has gratuity included, and you potentially leave a bit on top if you had a nice time. And then, if you're sitting anywhere else, like in bars, or like people think you're weird. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Best Sunday roast. Hmm. Good question. I so again with the proviso, as I said, that I'm vegan. Um, yeah. I, I'd not if uh, if I was going out for Sunday roast, I, I guess like these days it would be some kind of nut roast. But then you want okay. Here's the list. You need roast potatoes, obviously. Uh, you want carrots. Uh, you want parsnips. You want. Uh, I'd probably go peas. I do like peas. That's probably a controversial choice. But I do like peas, bit of cabbage, mm. maybe a Yorkshire pudding if we can make it vegan. Mm. Um, yeah, bit of bit of bit of stuffing, um, bit of, bit of mint sauce. What would you What would you go for? Oh, that actually sounds pretty good. I'm not a vegan, so I'll I'll take whatever on top of that. But for a base, that sounds fucking rad. <clears throat> I can't do dairy anymore. This since I had I had COVID five times, and since oh, then I've had. That a host of food allergies pop up, so that's fun. Jesus, yeah, I can eat fish and uh, salad now. <laughs> I can't even eat fruits. My... Can't eat broccoli anymore. No cruciferous vegetables. It's gone. Fucking hell, that sucks. So I couldn't even be vegan if I wanted to. I've got celiac now as well. I just can't <laughs> can't do shit. I can't drink beer anymore. Anyways, um, when was the last time you had fish and chips? Uh, oh, I can answer that actually because it was in America. Because well, not in America, it was in Puerto Rico, which I suppose I shouldn't call America. It was in the territory of the United States, um, because uh, they did not have any vegan food. <laughs> so um, I have come to a sort of peace with myself that I, if I can see the sea uh, and there is no other option for me to eat, I will eat um, fish or, and I've done that twice. Yeah, from um, a socialist viewpoint, I enjoy that. Well, yeah, it is basically. <laughs> I, um, so I had I had mahi mahi and and chips in uh, in Puerto Rico, and it was it uh, which was in on my honeymoon in um, January, and it was lovely. It oh, was very fantastic. nice. Fantastic! Wow, well, that's yeah. pretty far out. Uh, but I had I had chip shop chips. Uh, my normal chip shop order would be like. Um, Probably a vegetable pie or a or a pancake roll, uh, pickled onion, yeah. uh, a wally, which is like a pickled gherkin, basically like a big pickled gherkin. We call them wallies mm. uh, and chips. And I had I had and curry sauce, and I had that yesterday. Oh, nice! <laughs> Have you ever uh, suffered a beer blanket at New Year's? 
I don't know what that is. Oh, uh, you get so drunk that you can walk around basically with no fucking clothes on, and uh, you don't freeze to death. <laughs> no, I've been I've been very drunk a lot of times, um, but, and I've also I've been naked yeah. once or twice, um, but rarely rarely in the same way. Um, uh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll try that. Maybe I'll uh, that all right, last one. Uh, do you ever fake tan? No, I do use tinted moisturizer though. Does that count? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> All right. Thanks for finishing that one up. All right. That'll be our show for today. <clears throat> this is what happens when you uh, record at home without your equipment. I'm doing this on an iPad and I decided to eat carrots while I'm recording. I think this is just good audio. So. Anyways, uh, title track, we got our sound now. Uh, it's from uh, the band Vacant Voice. You can find them online. They just dropped an album. Um, <clears throat> they're kind of an indie band. They're already almost hitting nearly 100,000 uh, streams in like the first couple days. So, I mean, it's just a great band. We, we love them. We want to support them. So if you like those uh, songs, go, go, buy their, go buy their album. Support local musicians and such. Um, next week, we're going to have a long episode. It's been taking me a while to edit it down. It's going to be one, uh, with Brian and, uh, uh, Shanna Goodwin, who's, uh, another art historian. And we get into like a serious debate, like, uh, Brian and I basically start fighting about ignorant tattoos. So it's fun. It'll be a good show. Um, uh, also trying to get on the show right now. We're trying to get Freddie Negretti on. Um, I've done an interview with Vivin Lazanga. It was super fucking cool. And we've got we've got so many other people coming up the rest of this year. We hope it's going to be a lot of fun for everyone. So, anyways, hopefully you all uh, enjoyed this. Uh, if you do, yeah, go like, subscribe, leave us a review or something like that on the podcast platform of your choice. And um, make sure to eat your vegetables. I'm coming off of like a two-day bender, which isn't really a bender. It's just kind of like a weekend drinking thing. But I figured carrots would be good. So that's what I'm doing. I hope you guys like the show. We'll see you next week.
Forever, that I will try to know.